Welcome to the Five Phenomenal Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, another crossover episode with host of the American Werewolf in Vancouver movie podcast, Ryan Witten. We're discussing Southland Tales, the can cut, based from the recently released Blu-ray from Arrow. But first, what did I watch this week? And really, well, there was mainly only one thing uh, I think a ton of people watched this week. The thing the internet has been pushing forever a hashtag making a movie possible i'm talking of course the snyder cut of justice league and yeah i'll be honest i'm a little more afraid of talking about the snyder cut than i am about trump on here say i mean i know no one listens to this but if i were ever to be get into uh twitter battles or actually get commenters on here and it's it's also interesting when I'm talking about this on the episode for Southland Tales Can Cut because it's clear this is like a second dip on a movie that seemed incoherent and recut with a risk-averse mentality uh, to re-explain things and to shorten. And in both these instances, the original iteration, or I guess if the Snyder Cut is the original version or the new version or just the... Snyder's what he wanted all along is a much bolder vision that is significantly better than what we originally got. Sure. That being said, uh, this podcast is known to be a comic book podcast too. Um, and I am a comic book reader and Zack Snyder. Oh, I don't feel like he's a comic book reader. Like, he, he read Dark Knight Returns. That seems like it's it. I mean, most of these things are based off video games. I mean, his Batman, admittedly, the Ben Affleck Batman through Snyder has been very cool. But cool is the, the watchword there. It's It feels like the Batman from the Arkham games. The way he moves. The way he kills people. And just the all the... It's so funny, Zack Snyder's vision of the DC Universe versus the way the Marvel, uh, the MCU has played out. Because if you go back to the 60s, and I'm sure uh, my frequent co-host, Ted Haycraft, would really want to expound in detail on this. DC was the imaginative, fun universe, and Marvel was the grounded, lived-in, I, I don't know if you would call it dark, but it certainly had more real life real world occurrences in it and everything about snyder's vision for the dc universe seems like it comes from a video game the uh deaths the digital lack of physicality the painterliness of every frame which admittedly wow what a great looking movie and Zack snyder is some kind of pop artist i think he takes clear pride in that and watching the two but just on a practical level this obsession with this thing called the nightmare storyline that zach snyder keeps pushing he's been pushing into the movies first off as far as i know i don't think there's any comic book iteration of it the only version i'm familiar with is from from the dc injustice video games which even in that iteration, there's there's differences because everything is based off Lois Lane getting killed and Superman, the best and brightest of us, the model of a great of a great person with great power who's mannered and just the brightest and best of us destroys the earth after Lois Lane is killed. In the Injustice game, it's the Joker kills him and Superman plunges his fist through uh, Joker's heart. Uh, in the Snyder universe, I guess Darkseid kills her at some point. And then it gets into this idea that these Snyder really, the thing, the thing that's so much fun to watch about these movies, and Snyder seems to be really having fun with them, is he likes to play with these physical characters fighting and their powers and destroying shit and the drama around it it's just it's why people who don't like comic books don't like comic books it's this the stupid simplistic morality um forced drama on to scenarios that aren't like look at batman versus superman just look at that on the page 
Batman suddenly hates super the problem with that movie in both cuts even if you like the other cuts the problem with that movie is batman just suddenly decides that he hates superman even though he's supposedly a grounded character who's been hidden for 20 years and both the cuts hinge on this like irrational motives of a main character who then backs up off of it with the meme worthy jared martha moment and Oh man, we're already five minutes into this episode, and I am ranting about a comic book movie. It really—I'll I'll, I'll say this: it watching this again, it, it was a great movie. I, it really was. It was—it was fun to watch. It was bizarre in its choices. Uh, it was gorgeous to look at, and all I could think of is that point that Alan Moore keeps making: that our comic book movies infantilizing our culture way too much. I leave that to you. And now on with the rest of the episode. I listened to uh, the second episode of the podcast uh, today. How many have you put out? Uh, just two. So just Jeff and Brad are out right now. So it's still pretty pretty new and early but um but yeah things have been crazy lately and then with the ice storms down in austin most of the people i wanted down there were were in austin and so i had them all lined up for like when the ice storms were happening right. so now that everything i know i was just like i'm just not gonna bother them so like i'm gonna get things rolling again after this week is the template just you're gonna talk to old friends from austin and other people you meet in the in the film industry yeah i'm gonna try to get some people up here but i'm i've got like like i've got a buddy who's like a graphic designer at like a major restaurant chain now but he's like the one who introduced me to like studio ghibli and like my little brother is like a uh a national park ranger so i'm gonna have him on and we're gonna talk like you know some like grizzly the horror movie about you know a grizzly bear that attacks like all these people in a national park huh. so it's, it'll, it's just gonna be an eclectic like pick of like people people who i like have a good rapport with and, okay. and just talk movies with them so did you okay I wanted to originally I wanted to do this whole episode as a giant Richard Kelly episode, but we kind of scheduled this really fast. And Richard Kelly, I started realizing is someone that I have considered someone because he was such a success in the early to mid aughts. Even though you know Donnie Darko initially did bad at Sundance, according to him, which I guess it did. But um, like it's. We, we I didn't get around to, we we didn't get around to doing too much. We just mainly dived into Southland Tales. I was going to try to watch the box today and didn't get to it. But did you? Uh, I guess if we're going to dive into Southland Tales, did you read the comics? I did. Yeah. Okay. I had never. I knew of them, but I had never read them before. And man, am I glad I did. <laughs> you okay? What's funny to me is I bought those comics when they came out. And they came out not all at once. I forget I forget how far apart they came out. But I just, when I saw the movie, they didn't click at all. I had no clue what, like, it just, it the the short film in front of the theatrical cut helped more, or the, 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 the prologue in front of the theatrical cut helped more than anything else, I thought. Although, okay, let, let's go into it. What was your first reaction to Southland Tales? When did you see it? Uh, I think I saw Southland Tales, like, 2009. And so you didn't see it in a theater? No, uh, uh, no. I, 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 it was like right whenever I was watching a lot of like different like independent films. So I was like, I was really like kind of branching out. So like I had just gotten through like all my like Lars von Trier stage, okay. and like I was watching like Blue Valentine, you know, or another Earth, like anything I could get my hands on. I remember I had a group of friends that we would get together and watch different you know movies that were kind of out there and we got old of south Have you seen donnie darko i had seen donnie darko yeah i i mean I, I liked donnie darko like i owned the dvd whenever i was in high school like it was one of those like early movies that i was like oh this is this is great mm -hmm. um but yeah whenever i saw southland tales i 
it was like three or four days later and I was still thinking about it. Just I was like, so were you, were you, did you did, initially, did you like it? No, <laughs> initially I didn't. Were you engrossed in it? Were you paying attention to it? Yeah. I was just like, I, I just, but you were thinking about it days later. Yeah. Just because I mean, it was like, I was like laughing the entire time and I was like, I don't know if I'm laughing at or with this movie. And then the way it ended, I was like, I had no idea what was going on. Okay. Um, and I was so like just confused by the entire storyline because I didn't, I didn't know about the graphic novels or anything at the time. But I knew that this was something special. Like this was something that was trying to be like epic. Did you associate Richard Kelly with like Donnie Darko and that? Did you know of him? Like. I knew of him and like the story that I knew of him was, you know, Donnie Darko was a hit afterwards and then Southland Tales came around and it was just like such a disaster. And then he's been kind of trying to pick work since then. But no, I, I, I watched, I think one of the big reasons I watched Southland Tales originally was because I knew that Richard Kelly was involved with it. Okay. And Donnie Darko was a high school movie for you too. You, you owned it. Yeah. Okay. I, I would have been early college for me. I guess that's the age difference there. And I just remember being into it and liking it. And then uh, the Mad World song at the end of Donnie Darko, like making it stratospheric for me and just being really. And he was one of those guys who I admired a lot and probably wanted his career at that time. I liked what he was writing. I liked the idea that he was a very creative writer and considered a creative batshit writer who's doing going a lot of different directions. His influences always seemed especially the philip k dick stuff always struck me so i was so excited about this movie the other weird thing is that he was um he was such a uh, a golden boy for ain't it cool and harry knowles in early 2000s like harry knowles in particular really went after his uh talked about his script bessie which i think we'll talk about later too but um he really pushed and also he pushed uh, the domino script that ultimately got made by tony scott and um, when this movie came out, or when it played at Cam, it was a, it was a, it was it was a little while after I'd gotten to Austin, and I was a, a desk intern at Detour Film, which is Richard Linklater's company. And I remember what had happened is um, Linklater had Scanner Darkly coming out, but Fast Food Nation, the, his adaptation of the nonfiction book was uh, playing at can. I think it played in competition. So he was gone that week. I remember we were paying attention and Southland Tales played and everyone was going through the big premiere and then it had its really disastrous premiere of the cut that we just watched. And I was looking up Roger Ebert's review in particular, which I think, I think, I don't remember exactly what he wrote initially, but then in his review of the theatrical version, he came back to his original impressions of the can showing and it was just being booed at can especially now is considered i mean i can definitely end a movie but it didn't have the reputation it had in the mid aughts where like there's so many movies that people have loved that got this badge of honor of being booed at can okay what did you think of the can cut you watched the can cut this morning you said or yesterday yeah no i watched it this morning uh it explained a whole lot more like, and it was only an extra like 15 minutes or so. Well, the trick I'm curious about is I reread the the comics uh, right before watching this. And I think in both iterations, the comics and the movie, I think I paid attention more, but I don't know how much the comics helped, but I, I mean, for me, this, this version is one of the best examples I can think of a different cut making a completely different and significantly better movie. Like I it's it's to me it's just like I don't know if this is a good example, but on the other side of this camera is my Brazil poster. It's the Love Conquers All cut of Brazil versus the actual the theatrical cut of Brazil. Like which that's the Love Conquers All one is the studio recut to have this like nonsensical happy ending. This it's weird just because there's like in theory the can cut is so much messier, but at the same time it doesn't try as hard. I get I get the sense, um, but also it it re reinstates 
So the comic books, there's three comic books starting up beforehand. There's book one is Two Roads Divide. Book two is called Fingerprints. And book three is called The Mechanicals. And then chapters four, five, and six are in the movie. And it's uh, Temp Temptation Waits, Memory Gospel, and then Wave of Mutilation after the Pixie song is the la last chapter. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. If, is it just the comics that we read that like and I, I paid attention to better? Is that why? I, it's got to be like there's definitely parts of it. Because I read the comics before I saw the theatrical cut. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And I, I, well, okay. The co comics are drawn by a guy named Brett Waddell, who was a comic book guy. He, I, I looked him up. I actually have read stuff of him. He did, uh, I guess, he's cre he credits himself as doing an ultimate issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. And I, I think I've read almost every issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. And I don't remember the guy. He may have done Ultimate Team-Up. But he did a comic called The Surrogates that was later adapted into, I think, a Bruce Willis film. And I have that somewhere. I think he did a seven adaptation, but for the most part, he's kind of got, uh, if you're familiar with uh, uh, the Sandman cover artist, Dave McKean, he, he, when he pencils stuff, he does, not when he does his painting collage, but when he actually pencils stuff, this guy has kind of a, to be blunt, kind of a lazy version of it. Like most of his work is done with colors and none of the people he draws look like their counterparts. Like no, no. You were, like the second time around, I knew what I was looking for, so I could kind of see. Like it's hard, especially nowadays. Maybe not as like, then it'd be acceptable, but it's hard to fuck up drawing the rock. Like it's the fucking yeah. rock. Yeah, exactly. Like, how can you make it so that you don't recognize the rock as there as quickly? <laughs> but I guess when I was reading it this time, I knew which characters were playing who and what. So. Well, I'll be honest, like it had been so long since I'd seen the theatrical cut that whenever I was reading the comic books, like there were people in it that I, I didn't remember who that character was. And so, oh, absolutely. Did you did you skip? Did, did your version? Did it have the thing at the end where it had the stills from the movie? I had to jump to that. It did. Yeah. So it would have the characters. So I, but I was I didn't jump to the end so i would just read through the whole way and then at the end see who was playing that character in the movie and it was kind of enjoyable for me because i it became like a game to me of like i wonder like i wonder who's playing this character. Kind of like, oh moment yeah which uh the cast of this movie do you do you i got a question for you do you think it's a good like it's it's a very cool cast the fact that like all these characters come up but like is it a well cast movie not just for the fact of name recognition or you're excited people came in, but do you think it's a well-cast movie? No. Okay. Not really. Okay. Um, like, I think, like, this is definitely, I think The Rock was well-casted. Uh-huh. I, I think that he's, like, that's one of the bold, I mean, that's definitely the boldest character he's ever been. Yeah, but at the same time, it's early in his career. I want to say, like... I don't know. Rundowns is bigger. What? It's Scorpion King and Rundown are his biggest movies up to. The, it's 2006. He, ha, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the timeline, but like, for a guy who's like so has chiseled this idea of being charming on screen right now, like he really he does have maybe even more than like George Clooney right now or Tom Cruise or any of our stars who are just like seem like they're effortlessly charming. He's so good at it right now, and. He has his mannerism that he relies on in the movie where he does this like Woody Allen paradiddle where he keeps with his <laughs> fingers, he keeps putting his fingers together like, like, it, and then he's stiff in some, some scenes too, but like, well, it's still the rock. It's like, he's, he's always going to be watchable. And well, you, you know, the whole time that I was watching it, I, I kept on thinking like his, his like WWE training is still showing in his character. Like, How so just like like his reactions to things were so over the top like especially that opening scene where it was uh him and Sean William Scott in the uh, police car oh. he asked him a question and it's just like it's just so over the top that I was like oh man he's completely in wrestling mode right now. <laughs> like he, he, he yeah it's like it alternates between being stiff and then him having an interesting line reading that's like normal Rock. I think one of the biggest issues with this movie is uh, 
when you're when you're editing a movie, the, your first act is really hard to nail. Your first act, uh, you know, Billy Wilder famously pointed out that if a third act isn't working, your problem isn't the third act; it's the first act because the first act is. Um, it's your setup. It, it, say you're doing a, just a basic structure or two-point structure of a, a setup and punchline. Your first act is what sets everything up. It sets up the characters. Are you going to like the characters? What's the tone of the movie going to be? What is your audience expectations going to be? It's the opening minutes of a movie is where an audience decides like, if they're going to like be paying attention. Like if you fuck up your opening minutes, and it also gives their direction of what they should be paying attention to. And the thing that reading these comics beforehand made me realize was that there's so much exposition, setup, and world building that the comics did that, just, I don't know, there's no way that, like, unless you're just thrown to the deep end of the pool, like, and to be fair, the can cut does it supposedly more than the theatrical cut. I don't remember shit about the theatrical cut for the most part, it, but, like, it just throws you into the deep end of the pool, like, and with the the comics, I mean, just the concepts, like, the, uh, uh, the serpentine dream theory, uh, like that's barely mentioned in the movie until like it, near the end. It's the very end where they bring it in. Yeah, there's a whole story. There's a whole through line with the serpentine dream, and like a lot of the biblical references were were taken out of like that were in the comics that weren't in the movie that I, that I think would have yeah. helped provide ton of context because honestly, if you had asked me or if you had told me that Southland Tales was Richard Kelly's kind of adaptation of the book of revelation, I would have never said that. Like, yeah, I know it's been years since I saw it, but I would yeah, yeah, never totally. have said that. There's some Jesus stuff in the world ends. That's about it. Like we're and and oh the other thing which I don't think I read when I first re when I first read the comics I didn't actually I kind of gl I glanced through and this time I, I sat down and fully read the first thirty six pages of the power the screenplay uh, that um, Sarah Michelle Gellar and the Rock's character write that supposedly explains the it, it's it it is the Book of Revelations or it is the thing that's going to bring about the apocalypse the first thirty six pages are in there and then like. A lot of that stuff, I, 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 I guess the reason I skipped it over the first time because I thought it was just like Richard Kelly uh, throwing out a half-assed screenplay that he gave up on 36 pages <laughs> in. But no, there's recurring theme. Like one point the, uh, late in uh, the, the part five, the big sequence where uh, Amy Poehler and I forget the actor's name, but the guy that played Aeon Barksdale, they're playing the characters Dream and Dion. Uh, they actually recite dialogue from the script even though they make a joke about their improving it oh right yeah that didn't even occur to me the, the, when jericho in the early part encounters the mother of the in in the power script there's a um the baby that keeps growing too fast and is supposedly the uh i i, I don't know the antichrist or the <laughs> christ figure it's supposed to be the christ figure but he he farts Roarous they they thunder. make a, <laughs> they make a bigger the deal about his farts in that sequence you're talking about where the where his w uh, the rocks wwe acting comes out but in like the book they make such a bigger deal about like he hasn't he hasn't he hasn't defecated at all and and then uh the sean williams scott character uh is the same way and and yeah and i, I don't know i think very lazily i thought there was contradictions and when i was rereading it this time i kind of found now it's like Kelly was a good, I think my other frame of mind when I came into Southland Tales is that when Domino, the script of Domino came out, I, I think it was before Southland Tales, it was a disappointment and everyone had talked that up for years. I hadn't read Bessie, which again, we'll talk later. That's, that's something definitely to talk about. But the biggest issue was the director's cut of Dying Docker. Have you seen the director's cut? Yes, I have. Yeah. What's your opinion of the director's cut? It kind of ruins <laughs> Okay, thank you. Um, I I have a big theory on both of these. I don't know if you want me to go for it. Kind of go into it. So, so like I I believe that like Donnie Darko was a good movie because it was produced well and like they knew how to like cut it down to something that was like palatable. And I think like Donnie Darko wasn't. A hit at Sundance 
and then it was it was a financial disaster because of 9-11 well it was also i remember when donnie darko came out even before the the narrative of it like you know being a cult film or being a beloved film everyone was so their nose was upturned at it being the most expensive movie to come to sundance like it was like a five million dollar eight million dollar i can't remember movie at sundance and everyone was like you know clutching their pearls about that yeah yeah and so you know richard kelly gets this movie every you know it doesn't perform it doesn't do what it's supposed to and then it becomes a cult hit and he releases this director cut which explains all of the stuff that kind of make the movie fun and the make you know or like at least keep it interesting and so he releases this director's cut that kind of explains things and I have a theory that he thinks that that's what made the movie a cult hit. And so I think some critics backed you on that. There's some, there are definitely, uh, there were definitely critics at the time it came out felt that way. So I think like with, with what you're seeing from Southland tales where you've got the can cut and then you've got the comic books out too, is that he feels like his work just isn't understood. So he's got to keep on explaining it until people get it and then it'll be a cult hit i've, I've heard that i because i think the thing that startled me that i thought was so amazing about this can cut is actually like just the filmmaking chops just this sense of like this movie looks so much better and felt so much better looking than i remember to be fair he keeps to this day saying it's an unfinished film and never more so on this blu-ray <laughs> did it feel like all right i see your point yes there like there are some very very unfortunate VFX, especially at the end. And uh, it was, it was one of the, um, there was a period post Lord of the Rings where uh, the Lord of the Rings movies were the first release movies that really used uh, digital color timing. And post that, the people really pushed it. And there's some VFX here that look like they were just done in color timing, like that are, that the movie hinges on that just do not look. They're just unfortunate. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That that ice cream truck did not. <laughs> well, I feel like I, I, there's a part of me like, I can he put his own money into fixing those or like the compositing <laughs> like uh, software or the compositing abilities right now is pretty easy for someone at home to do. Could someone else do that? Hey, now? you know. I'm sure they could. I mean, look, they just released the Snyder Cut today. Yeah, I think after uh, I'm done recording this, I might try diving into that. As we're recording, it just got it just got re-released. But I agree with you, though. Like seeing the can cut does show that, like, for as like messy as the movie was, like he he had a vision for the entire thing. Like and he knew what the through through line was. It just didn't get. Did you did you watch any of the behind the scenes? No, I wasn't able to. Huh? Some of the behind the scenes is this weird thing where he keeps talking about um, everyone in pre production said that uh, they were they were they didn't have the budget or the schedule to shoot what they did, and they would shoot super fast and they would get it done. The most notable sequence was the. Um, uh, all these things I have done killers uh, basic music <laughs> video, which even in the theatrical cut, I thought was like the highlight of the entire movie and still always is like, like it always that. Yeah. That, that scene is still my favorite in the movie and they shot it in like super fast. They started after lunch and got it done. Like, like really super, super fast. And then Richard Kelly talks about like everyone's surprised that they got this done, stuff done super fast but then when they finished the cut to can, they sold it to Sony. Sony sh looked at a rough cut. Its executives knew what they were looking at with a rough cut. They knew how to expect like, oh, this isn't done. This needs work. And then the can reaction killed any momentum of them getting money to finish these effects, apparently. And mm. and yet, even to this day, this movie is now, uh, what, 15 years old? And this mm -hmm. is the 15th anniversary of this. We're still seeing the unfinished version of these effects. Like the director is still putting out the unfinished version of this. Like, yeah, it, there, there's, a, there's a give and take is what I'm saying. Like you can say like, Oh, we can put, we can do a lot with a lower budget, but then when you put your name on it and you're like, I stand by it, you you just don't get a mulligan. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like the, 
the bit okay the other thing that was in the back behind the scenes that kelly talked about was this idea that which made sense is that his movies need to see be seen multiple times and he wants to make movies that get to need to be seen multiple times i get that 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 like every film fan likes the movies that they can dive into a little more but i every time i've worked on a movie where we have to debate esoteric merit and uh or deep meaning that we'll get across the point i know i always push is that you got to make the movie engaging enough on first viewing so that someone will want to come back to the second and third viewing. And if like, I'll be blunt. So Southland Tales for me, um, I was talking to, I was talking to some friends about a movie one time and we were talking about this movie that whether we were, that it was going to be a disaster or not. And the friend said, Oh, do you think this is movie's going to be like heaven's gate where, uh, I mean, are you are you familiar with Heaven's Gate? The Chimino? the cult? No, no, no the oh, movie. My, sorry. There's a great no. <laughs> there's a great book by Stephen Bach called uh, Final Cut about the making of Heaven's Gate. Supposedly taking down United Artists. It was a over giantly expensive movie that like made so little mo- money. And the book discredits that. And the book has or the movie has this great history also where it's actually pretty beloved now. Like I love the shit out of the movie, but at the time it was the punching bag that supposedly killed a studio, completely destroyed United Artists. The friend thought that, uh, this one movie might be Heaven's Gate. And I said, no, no, that's not the worst case scenario of a movie just because that movie have ultimately got somewhat redeemed by history. The worst case scenario is Southland Tales where it's an incoherent mess that leaves <laughs> everyone indifferent and no one wants to see it. And no one cares about it. and No one talks about it. And yeah, which weird is also if that in that scenario, this movie Southland Tales starting to turn a little more into Heaven's Gate with the can cut because this cut makes sense. This cut's better, it's like a lot better. Well, and it's funny too because I, I I saw somebody talking about where they were saying that like like this movie is a movie that would be like is perfect to be dissected by Reddit. Yes, I saw that same thing too. And and you know the more you th- the more you read like the comic books and kind of Richard Kelly saying oh like I it's not done yet, it makes you wonder if it had come out more around now when he could have fifteen different social media accounts you know blasting out more information about the movie. If he had if, a Snyder Bros on his side. Yeah, yeah. Well, not even that, but just like. You know, they talked about, I guess there were, were there websites for the movie as well that you could go get more information on it? There, there were, everyone, there was a period of where post, people give credit to Blair Witch's website as being one of the big things that like led to that. It's big, epic um, box office draw. And everyone wanted to do a, a website like that for a long time. But I think one of the striking things about the movie though, as much as like, watching it 15 years out it it did feel like a great capsule of the bush years but it also felt quaint watching a movie about the apocalypse where the internet isn't really a factor or as much a factor and facebook doesn't exist or social networks don't exist like Mm. how quaint is that (laughs) it it is and you know if you if you think of because one of the things that I read about this movie as well is the fact that this movie was the original script was pre nine eleven. Yeah, and he he mentioned there was like some heist movie that he kept overwriting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then nine eleven happens, and he comes back and he makes this about like, and I mean, you feel like the the anxiety and the the kind of confusion of the era that was going on, but uh, I think there's something to be said that like. If you go back in history, you can like Richard Kelly is probably one of the most affected by 9-11 filmmakers <laughs> that exists. Because Donnie Darko came out like the the well, that, market finally put it out on like a week after 9-11 or the week before. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was about a airplane going down and then. Oh, right, 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 right. So that was a big, big um reason that people didn't go to see it and then you know rewrites this to include some of his fears and his like i i don't know if you noticed but one of the things that i thought was funny is there's a recurring theme of characters fighting against contracts (laughs) (laughs) and i was i don't know if that's I don't know if that's a specific nod to something that happened to Richard Kelly or if that's just something that, you know, came about. Mm-hmm.
well, the, the, the obvious thing that still that is struck, stuck in my craw from the beginning on this movie is that uh, guy, a, a, a celebrated filmmaker who couldn't get his, second, his next filmmaker film made, who is noted as a screenwriter on the side, decides to base a movie about revelation inside a screenplay. And <laughs> it's like, only a screenwriter would do that shit. Like, not the... The the, the re- there's a reason I skipped over all those pages in the comic. Just the screen, you know this better than anybody else. Like the screenplay form is the most godforsaken, and I mean that term in in this context. We're talking about a screenplay being the book of revelations, the most godforsaken format of readability ever. It's just it 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 is screenplays are where words go to die it's it's the the format to appeal to people who don't like to read who like or actors who only want to see their lines that's really or 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 script supervisors or ad or um upms to figure out uh uh to break down shit and figure out how many days they need and how many pay, the the word per minute rule doesn't even really apply to half the scripts anymore it's just no mm. yeah there's there's, we've lost prose in the in the white space of uh, of scripts these days. I don't think prose was, prose ever was into it though. But um, <laughs> no. you know, one okay, one of the weird, fascinating things I've never read this book, but there's a giant overlap because uh, Richard Kelly. One of the positive things I love about this movie is he keeps talking Philip K. Dick, but there's like this coterie of writers who. G- tended to be give you this vibe that anything can happen. Uh, they have this really great sense of the macro where life and death could happen all at once and this universal cosmic view of things. And But they're goofy. They're really goofy. And I'm thinking like people like Thomas Pynchon or Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut's also like with the energy stuff and Cat's Cradle. Kelly apparently was going to do a version or writing a version of Cat's Cradle for a while. You know who was attached to direct that originally? I know he had he was writing it. I don't know. And then there was talks of them turning yeah. into an FX show for a while. So Aronofsky was attached to direct that, which would have been <laughs> pretty interesting. And I kind of feel like Mother is aronofsky's southland tales at this point like right now like i know they're not on the same level but the fact that like with aronofsky's like argument for like because he keeps on trying to explain it and say there's more to it and you know so like are you are you in school that you don't like mother no i love it i'll see because i I mean, I love Aronofsky's amazing. I don't, so I think. I, but you're you're saying that he's going to keep trying to explain it into oblivion. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that because like I I saw it in theaters. I really liked it, um, but I I'm worried because he every podcast he was on, he was like he just kept explaining it and. And I was just like, no. <laughs> I still, I mean, I think it's a, tour, a filmmaking tour de force uh, built on a mixed metaphor is a big problem with that. But I was going to say that, um, you know, he keeps bringing up Philip K. Dick, Richard Kelly does in regard to this. I've, I've never read the entirety of this book, but when I looked at the plot synopsis, there's a shit ton of overlaps between Southland Tales and the Philip K. Dick book, uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Hmm. There's including... Um, the Sean William Scott character, Taverner, is named after the main character of the book. Oh. And one of my instances when I saw this, okay, I, well, I, I did see this when it finally limped into theaters. I saw it at Regal Arbor in Austin. And I remember if I had anything in my hand, I would have thrown it at the screen. The scene with John Lovitz, his, his, when he shoots, uh, when he shoots uh, Dream and Dion, <laughs> oh, he actually says at one uh. point, for no reasons apropos of nothing, lo, my tears. And I was just like, this is that feeling that Richard Kelly sometimes is just compiling influences or things that like he, he has a select idea that he's he's blending together. He's putting into a blender to make a movie. I would have thrown shit at the screen when I saw that. <laughs> but that being said, this time when that line came up, I wasn't that bugged because in uh, book three of the comic book, uh, Taverner, they show him back in Iraq with uh, uh, what's Justin Timberlake's uh, character's name? The, uh pilot abilene yeah which the, the book goes into more de- depth of their their relationship they have that exchange they both and one says flow my tears and the other finishes the sentence says the policeman said and 
So it's a little, little, little more subtle than <laughs> just throwing it out there. It's well. Speaking of John Love, it's uh, the, the the other notable thing you got to a little earlier. You're talking about the cast, the SNL cast here, like, and apparently did a lot of unpopular. There's a little bit of Mad TV people in here, but the SNL cast, like, just someone actually willing to do that. Like, I, I felt like you get a you you got a, a net positive with them on it. Like, I I mm. I asked you the question about the casting because like. I, I just I don't know if it is a well cast movie, but like I think multiple people have brought up it's a mad 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 world in regard to this movie, and I, I didn't put that together, but that makes ever like the entire cast make a lot more sense. Yeah, well, what's funny is I don't see it in Southland Tales, but it's mentioned at the end of Bessie in the, in the screenplay of Bessie. Like they're watching huh. a scene from it's a mad 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 world in there, and like Southland Tales like going back to that blender of influences, the big movie they reference is uh, Kiss Me Deadly, the Robert Aldrich movie, the um, uh, Mickey Spillane book, the one that has the uh, the nuclear bomb at the end and the glowing suitcase that they got for Pulp Fiction. Mm. And again, it's a movie within a movie that like, I guess informs the movie, but it's also like showing your influences on, putting your influences on your sleeve. Well, didn't they? They had the exploding nuclear bomb in the background like a few times through that movie, didn't they? It was like in a few different places. Like, are you, I mean, are you talking about like beyond the obviously the opening scene, but you're talking about like, was there. I feel like I saw it again, maybe in the uh, the neo Marxist lounge, but maybe, I, maybe I'm misremembering. But I, I was it a mural or something? Or did you see like a light? light? No, saw it on a TV, like in the background. That's but... I. I think I, now. Nah, nah, I think I know what you're talking about. Well, the the nuclear explosion in Kiss Me Deadly is just like a very localized one on the beach. To spoiler alert, in the movie, but it comes from the suitcase yeah. and then just like blows up a beach house. But <laughs> yeah. Um, I did. Did you notice in the uh, scene where the Mar- neo Marxists are taken down by the uh, urban pacification units? And uh, there's the little person that comes in there. Did you see who the little person kills on the toilet? Oh, yeah. Eli Roth. Eli Roth. This is the movie. Like Eli Roth was supposedly going to produce a Richard Kelly movie, Corpus Christi, that never got made. But um, this is a movie that has all these weird director cameos because obviously Kevin Smith playing, uh, was it the Dungeon Master? The character who's big in the in the prequel comics but like yeah, has a huge role which in now he wasn't in the theatrical cut right no or I was think, he I in it and he had just had a smaller part if he I was, was in, reading, in the theatrical cut wow i thought he was but i i feel like i had heard i was reading that i know janine garofalo she was either taken out of the theatrical cut you know or what, barely in that it. makes sense because one of the things i noticed this time that i hadn't noticed before is the headquarters the santa monica urban first pacification headquarters where they're monitoring everything is called planet telex which is a radiohead song and there's one scene in the movie where a like that's a radiohead song that was changed significantly from the studio version to the live version and the live version's playing in the background whenever um, Nora Dunn and John Larroquette are having uh, one of their mini scenes together. Their their arc, mm. by the way, in this movie is great. Also, I, I'm so excited. This is the second episode in a row that Nora Dunn has appeared in the movie, and I get to bring her on <laughs> the episode. I, yeah, you know his control of music is actually really good. Really good. I I don't know if that was restored in this. Like just everything about this cut, like the feeling of flow, tone, um. Cam- is his Stephen Poster is the DP on this, and he's. And I looked him up because Stephen Poster did obviously a lot of great work on Donnie Darko, but his career is mostly his second unit director on a bunch of bigger movies, and amazing work on this. I mean, in as much as the VFX sometimes don't impact him, <laughs> he's left stranded there. But mm. yeah, and then uh, we got to talk about uh, Justin Timberlake. Okay, that's. An interesting choice, I thought. For and his character was, I still don't think I understand his character in the movie. Okay, even even with the the, the comics added to the the they they mentioned. I think it's in the can cut. I don't. I can't imagine it was in the theatrical cut. They talk about his movie stardom before he went to Iraq. 
Like, like I understand his backstory, but you know, like the the jump between him being in the you know being the drug dealer in the video arcade, and then him being the sniper out on the beach as well. Like, I I was a little just confused on that. Like, like I know one line Kelly t- said that seemed to like. I don't know if it makes sense in the real world, but it made sense in context of the movie is that um, you just remember that era, the, the rah, rah, rah behind uh, everyone, uh, you know, our veterans going to Iraq and supporting your troops. And then the feeling, especially in the years after that, we really didn't support them, especially when they came home from with giant PTSD or especially at that time when uh, uh, people were getting stop lost and their tours were getting extended and the line Kelly said was something along the lines of uh, all those soldiers we sent overseas, all the um, energy they were putting outwards was suddenly turned inwards back towards America. Mm. All the enforcement. Mm. And, I mean, it, it goes along with that sequence whenever the, the, the aforementioned one with the killer song, which... With which the bug- I, I'm with you. It, do- it like, doesn't really... St- seem to fit with the rest of the movie but it's a great great like it fit for me it fit better in the movie this time just because it was about like veterans like being like told to i mean just the amount he's drinking in that scene i thought the drinking was a weird affect in the theatrical cut in this one it was just like you know drink your ptsd away like the, the like really helping veterans when they come back as opposed to just like supporting your troop as long as they're doing the work that stuff it just yeah and uh, throwing into their wolves or their psychology like the the, the theatric this can cut really gave me the sense that like going especially the things i thought that even if richard kelly doesn't entirely just instinctually did in donnie darko and we didn't talk much about the box just because i didn't re- wasn't able to watch it but there's stuff in the box that like really worked Kelly's really good at pathos. Like, just like, and these, like, they don't entirely make sense, but these moments of catharsis, like, like, and I'm not sure, like, on an instinctual level, it's all instinctual for him. I'm not sure on an intellectual level at work, or he, he could probably explain it, especially whenever, you know, in terms of things like the Dying Darko director's cut or the, uh, theatrical cut of Southland Tales that needs to explain, it has better clarity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think he's a guy. I mean, like you said, he has these brilliant moments and that's what keeps Southland Tales together. Like, especially the can cut because like, like for all intents and purposes, this is kind of a goofy movie. Like, Oh, oh, God. He had this line where he said he writes comedy when he's feeling more anxious about stuff. And, like, there's so much more comedy in this. And and it's weird just because it's also the dated stuff. And, like, <laughs> some of some of the stuff, it's like that exhibitionist thing that he's writing these lines for to appeal to people in the early aughts. There's the media obsession, the porn star stuff. All the Kristen now I, stuff is feels along those lines. The reality TV stuff. Well, and I don't know if you noticed, but I, I, there's got to be somebody out there that knows exactly how many times you see the number sixty nine in the background <laughs> of this movie. <laughs> like, it was everywhere. I didn't notice it. I, 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 I mean, I wasn't looking for it, but I don't think I noticed it. Oh man, it's all over the place, all over the wall, and I, I'm, I'm sure it has. A reference back to you know synergy and and you know fighting against each other. It's like, his, but it's his version of a yin yang. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it's just was hilarious to me. Like even on, they're on the beach and like the guy who's carrying one of them away like has just like sixty nine written on his back. And I was just like, I was that gave me a good chuckle. That makes sense. I always think of the uh, um, scene in the opening of Magnolia where the Bible passage about the frogs gets planted in the uh, in the side of the building and it was just a gag they were bored on set and they decided to do but it's, it's hidden in there but you could totally see it speaking of the datedness of this is this where we want to talk about bessie yeah let's do it you did read it yeah yeah what'd you think i was my first time reading it, it it's 
really interesting. Like I hadn't, so that was the first, I didn't, hadn't read Domino before or anything like that, but man, it's just so out there. Did you see Domino? I did. Yeah. Okay. I remember, because I think a lot of the thing with Domino is like all the out there stuff. I don't know if I, I don't think I've ever read it, but like it just didn't, it, it's there, but it's also Tony Scott at the time was already out there. This stuff, in fact, uh, one of the things that struck me about Bessie is for out there is as out there as it is, it's pretty coherent for about the first three fourths of it. Like, yeah. I, my big issue with Bessie was uh, uh, there's a big twist about three fourths of the way through when they show Bessie the video that like derails the movie. But up until that point, I thought, yeah, it was so coherent and it was such a streamlined thing. Cause one of the issues that keeps brought, being brought up with people talking about Southland tales and, and Richard Kelly will admit this himself is that whenever there's a problem where they need to rework the script, he adds more and a thing. Ab- and it's an instinct. I understand. Like I get it. Like anyone who's heard me talk on this podcast understands. I'll just throw words on shit. Like I will over explain stuff. I get it. But in movies, most of the time you want an idea as simple as possible to get across. You want something as uncomplicated and as pure and musical and just, not thinking through something you feel Mm -hmm. and so if you throw more onto it intellectualize it like well and you know it it does go back to you know you're like that's the age-old adage of you know show don't tell Mm -hmm. for a screenplay and like the thing is it's like i think richard kelly is a good screenwriter like i think he made it abundantly clear he's a great screenwriter and i think he's a Great screenwriter who understands structure very well. You, you like, know, it's, it's it's funny you use that word structure because like him being the like uh, I I kind of reread some of Harry Knowles's original review of Bessie in prompt to that and it reminded me back of that early reading Ain't It Cool news in the early two thousands where they were so all over Charlie Kaufman at the time who feels like a contemporary of Kelly of of their careers they could be and they just both went in different directions and Kelly. One of the things that haunts me about watching South and Tales destroyed my estimation of Richard Kelly for years. I didn't really have faith into him, even with the box. Like I thought it was good, but like I thought this guy was an incoherent filmmaker who only made good movies despite himself. And Mm. like seeing this again, seeing him as a coherent creator, just like did that can reaction? Did the journalists in that room? destroy a great filmmaker who could have made some stuff great stuff beyond this point kevin smith in particular points out that like richard kelly would be a a christopher nolan level filmmaker if he just got studio assistance and there's a certain wave of filmmaking uh filmmakers careers that if you lose confidence at a certain point then like maybe they can't maintain it but if those journalists in the room had gotten behind it, had seen a rough cut with rough special effects, Sony then in this alternate timeline puts money behind Southland Tales, they commit to the can cut, they commit to the near three-hour length, they finish the effects, the, the whole Hindenburg stuff at the end with the bazooka and the, the van growing actually looks good. All that stuff at the end. Would we have had some crazy, amazing, batshit, emotionally great, creative Richard Kelly movies throughout the year? I think there's an argument that yes. I mean, like, you even look at, like, the script for Domino, and there's lists out there where I forgot who the studio that had, like was like ha- or the agency that had him they would constantly send that out CAA, as like one of their cuz the Harry Knowles thing mentions the CAA red folder yeah and so he would he like they would send that out as like a, an example of like a great spec script or like a great script from their agency that make uh, that makes sense just because like you know, I think even if, if Bessie never, if Bessie's probably never going to get made, especially in this version, but it's a fun read. That's one of those examples of like a script format actually being fun to read. You can picture the, you get to picture your own movie, you know, especially a movie that abstract and that tonally all over the place. Like, because mm-hmm. the other movie I kept thinking of was um, the Charlie Kaufman, early Charlie Kaufman script, Human Nature, which was, I think, Michelle Gondry's first feature. And 
you know, Michelle Gondry ultimately nailed Charlie Kaufman and they made an amazing version together, but human nature, not some, I mean, it's, it's just kind of goofy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are in, that's the thing is I think Richard Kelly, like you said, he writes really well and like, like it's an enjoyable script. It's not something that you have to see the movie for to, to enjoy either. Yeah. Like, and there's only a few screenplays that out there that are like that. And that's maybe why he was able to get in the room with Donnie Darko, mm-hmm. you know, and Southland Tales happened. But, but it'd be interesting to, to read that first Southland Tales cut and just see how different it is. First draft, yeah. You Do you, the, have the, you? The, the yeah. Ocean's Eleven draft. The, but, mm. well, he, he's been saying recently that he's, uh, he's compiling a bunch of scripts that he, he wants to put out and he's, he's, he is consistently writing and reading Bessie. Like I w- I mean, even though I want to co- point out dated stuff, like there's a talk to the hand joke in there. And at one <laughs> point at the end, he like uh, Bessie says that she's going to get medieval on people's asses, even for all the dated stuff, like his pulse is on his fingers on a pulse, uh, 22 years. Mm. And it still feels not that dated. And I, he's really young when he's writing that, and I wonder if like he still has his finger on that. But I want to read what he's writing now, and like especially if like is there any possibility that he has like he's not being second guessed by people, and he's writing confident stuff. Man, like if he had if he had resources, I want to see what he wants he makes. I want to see. I don't know, like. I mean, everybody, every, there's so many amazing filmmakers right now that need money and resources. I get that, but I want to see what Richard Kelly had, would have done. And I kind of want to see what he's writing right now. And, and you know, another thing is, too, is, is like, this would have worked out great for, like, a series. I got the vibe hearing him talk that he's one of those, I need to, admirable people who are sticking to cinema. They're just like, I want to make, big high concept ideas that are adult and intellectually stimulating also goofy as shit (laughs) in a movie theater. And, but clearly it goes back to what you were saying about the Reddit stuff. Like every Reddit series, like we we just got through culturally talking about WandaVision on Reddit forever until the last episode came up. So whatever Richard Kelly wants to do, he would, he could make it work, you know? Yeah. But I mean, if he, if he's wanting to Stick to feature films and stick to the cinema. Like I, you know, more power to him. Got to applaud yeah. him for that too. Yeah. And like, I wonder if Bessie's one of those things where he just wrote it so early that he knows that, or he like thinks that he can do better or what, what is the story about like him not making it? Is it just too difficult to, I think it was a spec. I do. I think it was a movie designed as a spec to like we, as a writing sample. Mm. I think, I mean, like, it did the trick. I mean, yeah. like, in that review, he because uh, Harry Knowles went out to L.A. to talk to him, and, and when Richard Kelly handed it over to him, he called it his, I want to say romantic comedy or his romance. And, like, mm. I get it. The romance is, like, the rebar going through the movie until about three-fourths of the way through, and then suddenly it's abandoned in the last act. Mm. I get it or romance ish it's more like a sex story between an old couple it's like the mm. engine going through the movie but um oh i, I did want to talk about um most of richard kelly's movies end up having to do with the apocalypse and like i think all three of his movies have to do with the world ending in one way or another mm. and there's always a tone of suicidal ideation i've I found in it and release of that in there am i am i misreading that or no no because i i was actually thinking that um while i was watching this cut because you know there's the the famous rock line pimps don't commit suicide yes that every he <laughs> he takes so much pride in it, this also goes into that line that is both in the i think in the first graphic novel in the movie and if you go to richard kelly's twitter headline is in his uh uh the head is his banner of twitter which is um Scientists say that the future is going to be way more futuristic than originally predicted, <laughs> which he's clearly so proud of that line. And I, I don't, I don't feel that line. I'm just, I, I get it. it's fine. Well, it's funny. Cause like you watch this and you hear those like 
just ridiculous out there lines. And it's almost like he's trying to make a meme out of like these like one liners that he puts in these movies. But he's it's doing really crazy. He's doing a meme. Um, what? Like 10 years before the internet made it popular, but like 20 years <laughs> after Richard Dawkins made the, made the term like yeah. for him. <laughs> like they're just, it's nihilism. It's people giving up. We didn't even like, I wish we, I had been able to watch the box because it goes into my pet theory that like structurally it's very, very similar to Donnie Darko, including like a character just basically giving up at the end and giving it and, and sacrificing themselves by a suicide to uh to save the world. Although, again, mm. I don't remember much about the box, so I can't comment on the box. I remember more detailed of like having an amazing, amazing score. It has um, Wynn Butler and I think Owen Pallet doing a riff on Bernard Herrmann, but also doing kind of like the uh. Uh, Pendereski uh, atonalities and like, but at the same time doing it in that like orchestras, like saying being atonal and like really affecting audiences in a really cool way. But hmm. did you have any final thoughts on this, on the movie, on the can cut, Ryan? Um, should we, yeah, should we go ahead and do our final thoughts or like it? Would we recommend? Yeah. Oh my God. Would I recommend this? The can cut? Holy shit. I I think the real question, the big question I have really is, uh, do you need to read the three books? And I think the, actually, sorry, I didn't even go into the big issue. I wanted to uh, dive down. I, a lot of times when you make something that's kind of, or you work on something that's, um, very, uh, thematically trying or abstract. The question is how far, are you having the audience meet the filmmaker halfway or the creator halfway? Cause that is the, the, the sweet spot. Um, mm. Like, are you meeting the audience more than halfway? Cause then you're pandering to them. Are you meeting them less than halfway? Well, you're asking the audience to do more work. And the thing is, if you get an audience member in any medium to do more work, they're going to love something more. Like there's a great line that, I keep trying to find who attributed it. I can't find the actual quote, but it's usually talked about in terms of like books like Gravity's Rainbow or Infinite Jest or Ulysses. But this idea that a great book, and this can apply to a movie, but a great book teaches you how to read it. And it, 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 especially if something's doing something different with its language or its form, it teaches you how to read that form and see something new that you wouldn't have seen before. And we both read three comic books, like lengthy comic books in preparation for a movie we've both seen twice now in different iterations. And I read the comics for my second time. And it led to, for me at least, a really good viewing. Like, I think this is just real. I'll back, I'll reiterate. I think this is the best, uh, improvement of a different cut i've seen since the brazil love congress all cut so it was worth it i don't know for the average person if someone's going to come off the street watch the theatrical or watch the can cut like because the, the other thing about the like when you watch the can cut and it starts the four five six there's the pulp tradition of of a serial thing that star wars did and that's but it goes into a different pulp version where it's more into like the what second or third wave sci-fi writers that were doing or doing this like there's a tradition it's interesting but i I guess your question is can can you ask someone to come off the street and watch the can cut and like this i think you can come off the street and watch this and enjoy it but i do think that if you read the comics beforehand you're gonna get a different experience out of it like i think you're gonna get a more enjoyable experience out of the viewing to go ahead and read those comic books beforehand but i don't think it's necessarily unenjoyable by itself but also i can't say that because i didn't watch the kin without without the extra you know information i'm I'm gonna have to leave it where like i just can't say one way or the other like i think that for people that want to argue that uh the donnie darker's director's cut is an over explanation of what emotionally worked for people on the theatrical cut the can cut is works similarly. The can cut is something that feels like it will work emotionally. I don't know concretely. Like w- both of us didn't do that. And we didn't A B this 
to figure out whether one of the whether that was the case or not. So I don't know, but mm. I would say that if you're going to read the like, it's a rich world, and so if you're going to want to really dive in and you want to read the comics and really read the comics, you're reading. I mean, it's a six part saga where you're going to start halfway through, like, and not like the Star Wars movies where like you can just you can just watch episode four of the Star Wars movies and you're good. Like you don't need yeah. to watch any of the other ones. Yeah. Like you can, and it's, it's a much more richer experience. But yeah. Now, I, I, I think if I had to say, if you like, you know, if you were like, should I just never read the comics or should I read the comics beforehand? I would say you should go ahead and check out the comics before you watch the movie. Just because, I mean, as much as I like this movie, like this viewing of it, I don't know how many rewatches I'm going to get in like in one year. <laughs> I will, you know, I will say I am probably going to rewatch this as a point it, before I saw the can cut before um, the arrow cut re-release this Blu-ray. I was content to never see Southland tales ever again. And now after seeing the can cut, I will probably watch again. I hope one day Kelly does get back to like finish those effects and make a finished movie, hopefully with not these weird chapter intertitles where he has a Bible verse or explanation <laughs> of stuff, a la the Donnie Darko director's cut. But legitimately, like I, I hope we do get to see. Hopefully, what comes out of this release is that we get to see Richard Kelly build up some confidence and do something again. Because what? How long has it been since? the box came out is that like 11 years now yeah no 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 it's like uh 13 i think and 13 and I, I think the hope of it of the like podcasts like this and the re-release and everything is not just that he gets the confidence investors get confidence in him to do to take one of these scripts and make something yeah and i mean luckily we're in a time now that you know there there's distributors and Studios are taking a chance, giving directors a ch second chance, or yeah. So hopefully somebody, somebody does. I I could see him doing something at Blumhouse. Honestly, I can't. I don't anymore. I think his his low budget days are behind him. But I mean, because yeah, I I can't imagine well, that he hasn't had the opportunity, or someone's asked him at this point. But probably. I but. mean, he's probably. I, I I don't know, but I don't know. So, uh, Ryan Witten, uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Shane Hazen, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for joining me on mine. We're doing a, a cross collaboration. Yeah. <laughs>